Welcome to Inspired Artist Podcast with me, Porter Singer. I get to speak with Rishma Bahadur Singh today, who is a sacred chant artist. She sings in Sanskrit, in Hindi, in Urdu. She came from a Trinidadian Indian background. We get into that in the beginning. She is a mother, she's a teacher, and we had the longest, I think, and most in-depth conversation on this episode about raga. So if you've ever been curious about ragas, the time of day that they're performed, the emotions that they're trying to convey, you know, just what kind of sets this type of music apart from Western systems. I think you're really going to love this. I was infinitely fascinated with this topic, and that means that I, I kind of interjected a lot. So um, please excuse my enthusiasm, but uh, Rishma is a wealth of knowledge in this area, even though she considers herself kind of just further along than beginning, because this is a very rich, rich topic and that has a very long and rich history, understandably. Actually, before we begin, I wanted to add something that Rishma gave me after we recorded the episode because she's talking about Nava Rasa in this. Nava meaning nine and Rasa meaning juice. And these are the nine emotions that are being conveyed when singing Raga. So they are love, comedy, disgust, anger, compassion, heroism, horror, marvel or surprise, and peace. And um, she said there were eight, and this was added around the eighth century-ish, though there are some thoughts it came earlier. So that's the, the peace aspect. All right, let's go. Is your name at all related to the Sikh Guru Teg Bahadur? No, okay. Well, I don't really know. Um, so I'm originally from Trinidad. And in Trinidad, um, there's a large community of Hindu Sings. Um, so we don't really know. And also Hindu Sings. Hindu Sings. Huh. So I'm not Sikh at all. Huh. And there's a large community in Fiji as well and in India. So whereas, um, so we actually have the Sing at the end. But so I get confused a lot, especially where I work as, as an elementary school teacher, all the kids will be like, oh, you're you're Punjabi like us. I'm like, but I can relate enough. <laughs> so we're Hindu, Hindu sings. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. I think we will just begin there because that's, that's a really, that's a really <laughs> sure. great start. So you're from Trinidad originally or you're like where you were born there? Or your parents are from uh, there? So actually, it's a little bit of British colonialism here. So when the slave trade ended in the Caribbean, the British needed people to work in their sugarcane fields. So they brought endangered servants from India to different areas of the world. So the Caribbean, um, Guyana was another one, Fiji, Mauritius, there were some all over the world and they were Indian people because um, we were owned by England at that time and we were brought there to work. And so that's how there's this huge community in Trinidad in the Caribbean of, of Indians. And mm. so my great great grandparents were from India and the exact region we don't really know because we've actually we've lost our language well at least in my family we don't speak the language anymore uh, again because English was considered the language yeah. to learn um, but we do know on one side of my family they spoke Bhojpuri which we just and again this is all new information for us because people started to to try to uncover what where we're from so we think we're from Bhojpur, 
because they spoke Bhojpuri, but that's a specific style of Hindi. And then on my mom's side, they spoke Urdu. So hmm. kind of opposite ends here. So we don't really know. And then again, when they brought workers, they brought some from North India and some from South India. And then, of course, when you're in Trinidad, everybody mixes up. So, yeah, that's kind of that's where I'm from. And I moved wow. to Canada when I was about four. So I've been here ever since. Oh, wow. What an what an interesting background. So I knew about the indentured servants um, in Fiji because when I visited, I noticed that there was like this class thing going on where the native Fijians sort of looked down on the on the the Indians. I mean, it was quite it was quite startling. Like it was. It is it is different in Vancouver. We don't have as much from Trinidad, but if, for example, you would go to Toronto on the other side of Canada there are huge Trinidadian populations. It's it's one of the biggest populations outside of Trinidad itself. Oh. So you can go to Toronto and get the best Trinidadian food, the best music. It's And you, you feel like you never left. It's just in Vancouver, there's a very, very small community and there's a larger in, uh, Fijian community here. Oh, okay. okay. But yes, you do have those um, those power dynamics between the different communities. Yeah, it was really interesting because the... I guess I'd never really experienced like that sort of class dichotomy with people that, I mean, they don't look too dissimilar. There's obviously, you know, yeah, it's, this, it's the same with me. So even when I was learning um, music or if I'm in a pure Indian community at times, it'll be like, Oh, I would say, Oh, I'm Indian. And the response would be, Oh, but you're not really Indian. You were born somewhere else. So you're not Indian. And so my new answer is I am what your grandchildren will be. <laughs> here and so would you consider your grandchildren not Indian and it, it gets very fine so I feel like I have meant Trinidad maintained their Indian heritage religion and culture we've lost some things like the language and I think the main thing was the the lack of confidence at times that we didn't know where we were from why our words sounded different and when I learned that we spoke Bhojpuri our words were actually correct it was just we didn't speak Hindi, we spoke a completely different language. So, and in that language, that word meant <laughs> what it is. So that's where sometimes it can be. So even living in Canada, sometimes I'm either too Indian or not Indian enough. <laughs> I have a fun, <laughs> fun experiences based on, just on that. And then of course, with the last name Singh, um, Bahadur Singh, the Singh is a common Punjabi or Sikh name, which I am neither. Um, so at least that I know of. <laughs> so um, it's a the that sing. Um, there is a population in Trinidad as well as in Fiji that use that last name Sing. Again, if we knew the exact region where we were from, maybe we could trace it back. And I bet you yeah. somebody has. Um, but yeah, there's a, there's a huge uh, Hindu population that, that use the the last name Sing. Huh. Well, Sing was always like an elective name anyway. So right. I wonder if it was the just warriors, like, I think yeah, from the caste system. So you will have the the warrior class. So if you have the last the Sing in it, that's just meant that you were part of an army or part mm. of uh, defending the the kingdom, right? The village. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> yeah. What an interesting background you have. Wow. So how much has like Trinidadian music influenced your music? Well, growing up in Trinidad, we really kept a lot of the older songs. So if you hear Trinidad and Trinidadian music, they have a lot of Bhojpuri songs and they've created their even their own songs. So they'll mix English with the Bhojpuri or they'll translate them. 
um, into different things. So I always grew up in a musical environment because Trinidad is very musical. When I moved to Canada, we followed a particular guru. So then, um, and the population that we were with were mostly from Fiji, South India, or different regions of India. So all of a sudden I was exposed to many different types of Indian people, different accents, different languages beyond Hindi, like Telugu or Tamil. And so we would sing um, in our sessions and they would sing in all of the different languages. So I got used to singing mostly in Sanskrit where a lot of the songs are based in Sanskrit. Then of course you have some that are regional languages. So um, we sang quite a bit in Tamil. Some of the people would sing in Tamil, so we would follow. And later on, as the population just grew following my guru, we started singing in many different languages. So Spanish and French and all of these other languages started coming in. Farsi, I believe we sang once. That was really fun. Um, <laughs> all the different languages. But I mostly focus on, on Sanskrit and Hindi and sometimes Urdu. So as my mom's side is Muslim, and so I really grew up listening to a lot of Kavali songs, and I just love them. And within my spiritual community, we would uh, sing a lot of the Kavalis as well. Um, even though we were, I guess, Hindu-based, we would still sing everything. <laughs> we didn't discriminate. <laughs> wow. Wow. What, an, wow. what a rich history you have. I love hearing about this. So when you say you mostly uh, chant in Sanskrit and um, Urdu and what else did you say? Um, Hindi as well. I think mostly um, Hindi. Well, there's different styles that I sing. So if we're specifically focusing on the bhajans or kirtans, then those would be almost in any language, but mostly in um, Sanskrit and Hindi and sometimes English. Um, I don't really venture out into the other languages, but sometimes we'll have people who will sing in those languages and then I will repeat we'll yeah. along with them in the kirtan style. But I'm curious, so did, was that just um, like, is that sort of what your heart pulled you towards? Was there like a philosophical reason for that or? Well, my grandfather started following a guru in India in the seventies. So before I was born mm -hmm. and my parents started as well. So I, I think it's very similar to you. We grew up in a, in a community uh, following a specific guru. And oh, I didn't grow up in it. Oh, sorry. I, okay. Yeah. Okay, so we I used to, I grew up in a community following a specific guru. Yeah. So and one of the main components of that spirituality was singing and music. So bhajans was a huge, huge, huge thing, and it's a, the style is a little bit different. It's um, they've made the song shorter, and then the mic is passed around so everybody gets a turn to sing, and then there's a specific order. You always start off with a Ganesh song, and then sometimes a guru song, and then a, a goddess or mata song, and then you can sing whatever you want and. It's just a, an open mic session pretty much. And we all get a chance. So everybody gets their five minutes or three minutes, however long you want to sing. And you can, if you feel like singing Krishna today, you sing Krishna. If you feel like singing Shiva today, you sing Shiva. And some people only sing the same song each time. And that's totally fine as well. So that's the main style that I grew up singing. And that's what I, I, I share. Um, but when I was that age as well, my mom wanted to put me into classical Indian music. So... Um, so she, I didn't really understand what was going on. She just said, drop me up at somebody's house and I would just sing there for an hour. And that's where I started singing classical Indian music. So ragas. And lately in the last, I guess, uh -huh, 20, I want to say 20 years. How old am I now? In the last <laughs> that, I really started focusing more on the ragas. 
I started exploring just what, why do we have these time differences? What do the notes mean? How does it affect your body? Why is it a meditative practice? What is that yogic connection to ragas? And then I realized that ragas were actually the base of all of the bhajans that we sang. So then when I learned that, oh, this Ganesh song that I thought was just a, ch a child song because it was so simple and the melody was so simple, I thought, oh, okay, yeah, that's kind of boring. But then I learned that it was composed in a rag called Raghamsadhwani, which their specific notes are specifically designed for the energy of Ganesh. And so this simple song that I thought was just a song that you learn when you're five and that you sing forever <laughs> was actually such a profound song. It had, it wasn't only a melody, it was based on this energy of the rag using with for Ganesh. So then I started peeling these down and that's kind of been my, my search. Um, so I've been reading things about my guru as well as other um, yogis and saints all around India on music. So then I started learning that there was something called the yoga of music and the yoga of sound. And that's where I started exploring. And then I, I think I started to appreciate the bhajans more because growing up in something you think, oh yeah, that's just what we do every day. Like there's nothing special about it. I don't know. He just said to do it. So we do it every, every Sunday or Thursday. But then I started to realize, wow, okay. Clapping. What does that do when we clap, when we sing that activates all of the, the or I guess meridians or nadis in our hands. It also connects your brain and then, okay. Singing as a group, what's the big deal. Okay. That makes that entrains our body to all have the same beat, the same rhythm. And then we all journey together into the spiritual upliftment. So there were so many little, so many amazing things that this seemingly simple practice was actually much more than I had originally thought. And then I started to appreciate, even myself, I started to feel embarrassed of my songs when I used to sing outside of the, my community, thinking that, oh, our songs aren't good enough. They're just simple. This is the way we do things. You do things differently. But then I started to realize, oh, wait a second, there's a method behind the madness. There's a, and then I started seeing how amazing um, the practice that I was born into actually was. But it took coming out of it to actually realize, oh, okay, wait a second. This is, this is, I'm on the right path. Is, is, so let me ask you about that. When you say you came out of it, you like went off to college or something like that? Um, I think it's mostly, uh, so I was, we have, you know, those sort of, I guess we call it Sunday school programs or balvikas. We go every week. So I've been going to those classes since I was a child. When I went to university, I was still sort of involved in the youth groups. But after university, when I started working, I just sort of backed off a little bit. And I said, um, actually, it wasn't until I got married that I was trying to say, well, I see this wonderful yoga community in the West. And I'm from this, uh, I guess, yoga community from in, based in India. So I always thought, well, why can't we just merge and get along together and work together? And I did have that feeling too, that people with this 200 hour yoga training knew more than me. Hmm. So I said, well, let's just work together. Let's just get together and let's just share. And so that's where I started stepping out of my spiritual community. It was very, well, not sheltered. It was just like, we all knew the information. I didn't have to teach or learn. Everybody just knew. And coming out of that into different uh, yoga teacher trainings, um, people inviting me to teach in their courses or on mantra and singing and kirtan. What exactly do these topics mean? What do they do for us? And then I started doing my research on a different level, reading different saints and gurus and yogis about what they have said about this topic, doing my own research and introspection because it takes some time to absorb it all. 
that's when I started to realize, oh, wow, what I've been doing my entire life was based in such a profound knowledge. And I just took it for granted Mm. because they don't really teach you all those things. We just, we did it. Mm. Um, It was, it was less intellectual and more heart-based, which is, which is great. So yeah, that's kind of where that came from. What do you think was the shift for you in seeing yourself as like somebody who could go out and teach and perform and like be in the spotlight as opposed to like one of the community? I still have. Out of that, I think for me, it was when I started just sharing with others and I didn't feel like I was qualified to even say anything. I felt like, again, I didn't know enough. I didn't have my 200 hour training. I didn't, you know, you always put these things, that feeling of imposter syndrome, really this yogi, or you should go to my guru directly or go to somebody directly, not me. But then when I started teaching, I found that there was such an interest in it and people really wanted to know. And things that I took for granted as simple and just common knowledge wasn't. And that's when I realized that I did have something to say. I did have an expertise in something. So that's when I started um, to teach uh, initially actually online before online was a thing because I had a small small babies at the time, so I couldn't really travel. So when they're in their nap time, I would teach uh, one-to-one or small groups online before Zoom. Uh, so that was a bit fun. And then it was it just grew from there. It slowly grew and grew and more interest came. And then I, I think especially with... Uh, with the the movement of decolonization of yoga, people started reaching out to me. Mm. So they started seeking me out because they wanted to know the traditional ways. Um, they wanted to hear what is what they just wanted to know and they wanted to explore. And as soon as I would open my mouth, people would say, oh, we never knew that. Nobody ever told us that. And that's when I said, okay, I actually do know what I'm, do know what I'm saying. I do know what I'm talking about. There will always be more to learn but I know information that people would like to would like to explore. And even the style that I sing, I think I sang at one festival in Oregon. And when I sang, the most common comment, even though everybody knew about what Kirtan and Pajin were, um, they said, well, we've never heard that style before. We've never heard Kirtan sung like that. And for me, I'm like, but this is what everybody does. Mm. This is this is so common. How could you? <laughs> I, I, I don't want to say how could you not? I'm like, I was just surprised that you know what is so common and and normal in my community even within india is not here Hmm. so that's when i started to explore music more as outside of my community i still definitely do i'm very involved with my own spiritual community but um i'm stepping learning to step out a bit more i'm i'm seeing like because okay so when i took anthropology there was this term uh syncretism syncretism yeah I think that's what it was it's this idea that wherever something travels it's going to get sort of appropriated by the culture that's there it's not it wasn't in in anthropology it wasn't in in a negative context it's just what you know it's like Buddhism moves to Japan it takes on a different flavor than when it's in India or when it's in Thailand or whatever it has totally different I'm wondering was there kind of um a Trinidadian flavor to your Hinduism ever, or did it stay very? Yes, yes. I would think so. Um, The way we practice Hinduism, we didn't really, well, at least growing up, we didn't really distinguish between other religions. So for Diwali, for example, everybody would be on the street, regardless if you were Christian, Baptist, Muslim, Hindu, 
everybody celebrates together. And we would go and celebrate everybody else's. Um, My dad, for example, would go to the mosque and he always felt welcome. There was never a problem like, oh, you're the wrong religion. You can't be here. We were always welcome in each other's spiritual spaces. And that's what I grew up with. That idea that we are not separate. We are just all one big family singing, (laughs) singing in different languages and singing in different styles. But at the core, we're all the same. So I think that really came from that Trinidadian openness and as well as my guru, he always stressed that as well. It doesn't matter if you're a Hindu or Buddhist, Christian. Um, at the core, uh, I guess one famous quote is, all the religions are facets of the same truth. So at the deep core, we're all based in love. We're all based in that divinity. The outside surfaces may be different, and there will be different on the on the external part, but that core is all the same. Oh, that just reminded me, I've been listening to this um, guy called Robert Grant. Have you ever heard of him oh my god I'm just sometimes I just find out about somebody and I get so excited but he has this podcast and what he says is that um fact is actually facets Mm. when you said facets it reminded me of that because um it's like basically the idea is is that all of the myriad facets that every single incarnated human and animal and planet whatever contains is is the whole you know it's Mm -hmm. the the composite of that is the oneness, right? Um, yeah, that just, that made me think of that. That's, that's cool. And, that, and that's what I feel. I feel sometimes my style may be different from, I don't even want to say different from mainstream Hinduism because that's putting Hinduism as this homogenous hmm. community. And within Hinduism itself, there are so many different styles. There's so many different belief systems. My version of what you call Hinduism would be very different to the person across the street or down the hall or in another community. So yeah, I'm trying to not use that as a blanket term, but the in the tradition that I grew up in, in, in that's how they approach things. Hmm. What is it about you that makes somebody say that would key them into the fact that you aren't straight from India, that you, I mean, obviously you're, hmm. you have a Canadian, you have a Canadian slash American accent, but, <laughs> but like what, why not? from India as opposed to from Trinidad, what do you think about your demeanor or, or is it just that you say that out the gate? I think people will immediately say, because I can, my, I don't have an accent. I grew up here. So my accent is mostly gone. Little words will stick in here and there. Um, it's also a way of thinking, I believe. So I've grown up in the West. I've grown up in Canada and I found a lot of parallels with many of my friends and artists who have also grown up in the United States and Canada where they've either immigrated to Canada or were born in Canada or the United States, we all have this similarity where we still hold on to our Indian traditions, but we are able to move back and forth between um, the Western cultures and the Indian cultures. And we have, I feel like an openness that we're more willing. I shouldn't, I shouldn't generalize again um, with Indians, but it's just, um, I'm trying to say, how is the feeling different? It is different. But again, Indians in response to me has been mostly very positive. Um, Actually, I shouldn't say mostly, it's always been positive. They're always excited that I'm singing the language, I'm sorry, singing these songs. And I'm actually aware of the information because even in India, I think we have this assumption in the West that everybody in India knows everything. Mm. That they are all yogis. They know all their mythology. I shouldn't even say their stories, their history. And that's not the case. Um, a lot of it, we're just regular people. So I have students of from all around the world 
And the Indian pe people from India, they really respect what I have to say. They're just happy that somebody is sharing it. So even my teachers will be like, we're so happy you're, you're spreading the joy and the music. And that's sort of the, the response that I get from Indians, that we're just happy that you're doing this, that you're spreading the music and the love and the knowledge um, to other areas of the world. Hmm. Yeah. So what, um, what is your favorite thing to teach? Ooh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, my favorite thing to teach actually is bhajans. I love it. Um, well, I teach a couple of different things. I have like a course where I do a general Nada yoga where I go a, an overview of what is mantra. Then we learn some mantras. What is raga? What is bhajan and kirtan? But I also find that that sometimes is very intellectual. So sometimes when I just get the chance just to sing, let me just teach you a song. Let me tell you a story that goes with it. Let's connect to it. Let's feel the song. Let's learn the song. For me, that that's what gives me the most joy. Now, lately that I've been exploring raga, I don't really teach raga as much. I've just, actually this year, I've just started to teach raga. Um, again, that confidence and imposter syndrome <laughs> issue, like how much do you have to know before you start? And I find for me, raga is a very personal um, it, personal journey, whereas bhajan and kirtan is a more of a community journey. So you, you, you're you with that sangha, you're with that community. And um, raga is more individual. Um, even though other people can listen, it's really just one or two people singing or playing mm -hmm. instruments at a time. So that's why I feel it's very different. It's, it's very personal. So I like to do that at home alone. Uh, maybe my kids will be around and they'll join in. But for me, the bhajans is really where Everybody is together, everybody's singing, everybody is sharing and creating that energy and that atmosphere. So for me, that would be my favorite. When you say uh, singing raga, are you talking about just singing the scales or are the words that you're singing important? So I'll clarify for those who may not know what raga is. Um, raga is based on the seven major notes in the Indian classical music system, which is very similar to solfege, like the Dora Mi Fa Sol La Si, we have Sare Gama Pada Nisa. Um, so the same idea. And then, so what happens at different times of the day, you will have different combinations of notes. And so, for example, a morning may have the notes, um, Rag Bhairavi would have, um, I'll just sing it for you. Sare Gama no no I'm not I'm not judging I'm I'm just thinking about how difficult that must be <laughs> <laughs> so then we take those notes and then songs are created or improvisations are created so um from just based on those notes and every there's different times of the day so the idea is our bodies change according to the earth and according to the time of the day according to the seasons so there can be specific ragas for specific times of the day so that raga would be specifically for the morning when you're trying to wake up and do things and then so when you sing it or you listen to it it could be scales it could be patterns alankar patterns it could be um singing a song it could be improvisation um that you get into that energy space. An opposite example would be like a, a nighttime raga, which would be more romantic, 
uh, based in uh, love. You're just more serene. You're just sort of floating around <laughs> in the gardens with the moon and the, and the stars. Um, so it's a different, completely different mood and emotion. And emotions are really linked to ragas. Um, they're based in these, um, the Navaras are these nine emotions or juices, what it's directly translated at. So you can express yourself through these songs as well. Can you repeat that word? Na naga? I've never heard that before. So Nava is Nava. Nine. Yeah, so Nava, Nava is nine. Rasa. Rasa is that juice. So the Nava ah. Rasa. So there will be like anger, disgust, um, enchantment, humor. I'm trying to remember them all now. Peace. Uh, okay, there are nine. I can't remember them off the spot. But then uh, when you go into the arts, then as a singer, I don't really go into those. I mostly stick with the peace, the love, the compassion. Yeah, that's the one, compassion and um, love. Uh, whereas dancers, for example, when they're dancing or expressing the music through their bodies, then, and they're trying to portray something. So let's say they're showing the Ramayana and they want to show Sita and she's sad. Um, or distraught, then they would, then you would have the raga or the music and the song to match that emotion. And then they would express themselves through that, through movement. So the ragas, that's a huge topic. And it's, it's something I'm still exploring. I still feel like, even though I've sung it almost all my life, but I've only really focused on it in the last few years. And there's so much beauty in it that I never knew existed. As a child, I have to be honest, I would listen to them and I would fall asleep. But now <laughs> as an adult, I really, I appreciate them a lot more. And I, now that I understand what they are and I understand the beauty and the meditative practice to it, because it is the traditional raga system was a form of yoga of sound. It was, mm. everything was incorporated, the breathing, you have the pranayama, you have the um, concentration, the one pointedness, and you, of course, the end, you're trying to reach for that silence. Mm. So Again, I'm not saying I'm perfect. <laughs> I'm still on that journey. Uh, I'm still learning, but I, I thought I would start sharing it with others as well. Mm. Well, the idea of the fact that you're ever going to be complete is, is a silly one. <laughs> yes, that's true. I'm glad you started. <laughs> yes, I, I'm very, very much at the, I think not quite the beginning, a little <laughs> bit above the beginning, but. So like tell it. me about the, how the Navarasa, um, how does that link to the to the ragas? I didn't quite get that. Oh, so each raga will have their own rasa. So um, I'm trying to think of one. I think, for example, like ragyamin, I believe it is shanta, which is peace. But sometimes you can have a bit of love in there as well. So when you sing that song, it evokes that emotion within the singer and in within the listener. And the idea is to, um, I did a little bit of a course this year on raga therapy, like using raga as a form of medicine. And the whole idea, um, my teacher, she quoted Patanjali, but I can't give you the direct quote right now. When you're lacking something, you do, you provide the opposite to it, um, uh, the opposite to it. So if I'm lacking in love, I would sing more ragas based in that rasa or that emotion of love to subtly bring that emotion into my body mm -hmm. so that's the idea of rasa but again um, that takes a long time for professional singers to really develop in their song so I'm still trying to learn how to develop that so when I hear my teacher singing it's just like okay immediately I can hear the love in his song or I can hear the compassion or the peace or the the emotion so wow, each so has their own emotion 
So this is a basically a, a transference or a, a conveyance of an emotion through the vehicle of sound. That's the, it's not just a note. You're actually infusing it with something. I suppose like you would, if you were writing up a song, you know, where yeah. like the word, but much more consciously. And it sounds like the whole thing would, wow. And so how does that figure into what time of day it needs to be sung at? So they're actually a chart um, within now the North Indian and South Indian systems are different. So I'm going to specifically speak about the North Indian systems. So you can actually find ch charts. It's called the TAT system, T-H-A-A-T. And the TAT system, there are nine different, oh, sorry, let me back up there. I'm going to erase all TAT information because that will be a different topic. So the day is divided into hours of uh, three hours each. And so every three hours, um, there are charts where they have, okay, at this period of time, you have to sing these ragas. In this period of time, you have to sing these ragas. So there's actually a chart that's based on that. And I used to wonder why. And recently I, I learned that traditionally, not so much now, but previously, I, I even say like 30, 40 plus years and back, um, in the temples, they would have singers at all times of the day. And if they would be singing between the morning session, nine to 10, they would only sing songs or ragas in that, based on that time period. And then when it was later, they would sing ragas based on that, that time period. So throughout the day, you would have the different ragas based on the time periods sung within the temples throughout the whole day. Now that's not done as much. I think a few temples still do that, um, but many have moved away from that tradition. Unfortunately, I think it's such a, a neat one. Even in the middle of the night, there's ragas for uh, midnight or 3 a.m. I'm familiar with, with that concept because in the Sikh tradition, we have um of every every shabbat is is in a specific raga i think a lot of them have been lost in my understanding like the actual yeah, yeah we, we don't really so i think there used to be over i think it was said there were over 300 ragas at one point nowadays we may recognize about a hundred of them but even nowadays the ones that we actually sing may be 30 to 60 and even that as a performer i may only focus on five yeah so and then there are certain ragas that are based in regionally. So within the Dhrupad system, they may have a raga that's just that community will sing that. And if somebody, for example, dies, that raga may disappear with that person. Mm -hmm. So that's where a lot of ragas are disappearing. But people are trying to maintain them, at least record them so that you have a record of that particular raga. That that idea of the the temple having a different sound throughout the day. I mean, it that that oh my gosh, that blows my mind because you <laughs> you you imagine like just vibrationally inside, it's like a living organism where the sound is evolving as the day evolves. I mean, that's, oh, that's just a way to describe it. <laughs> that is really beautiful. Wow, I didn't know that. That's that's really cool. Um, so so then when you when you get back to the emotional part of it. So is there a specific emotion for each portion of the day or is any emotion valid within those three hours? Yeah. So there are different emotions for each dog. And this uh. was something I was trying to clarify because I was listening to different lectures from singers. So the main system, you have a specific rasa or emotion on a particular for each dog. But I think last year I was listening to one of my teacher's teachers 
And he was saying, well, I don't follow that system. I could sing any raga with any emotion. And he could. So in that lecture, he actually would sing a raga and said, okay, I'm going to sing it lovingly now. And he sang it very sweetly. Now I'm going to sing it with anger. And then, so he was able to change that. And listening to that lecture kind of blew the whole <laughs> rasa system out of my window. But the way that we are trained now, again, he is a top singer, so he can do something like that. For the rest of us, um, we have a specific emotion for a specific raga. Okay. Okay. So you, you learn this raga has this emotion and that's what you imbue yeah. it with. Okay. And sometimes we won't even know what the emotion is. They will just say, let's just learn the raga and it'll come. Oh, okay. Interesting. But one day when you see yourself as a <laughs> world-class raga singer, <laughs> you will, you will be singing every, every, or every raga, every raga that you sing in, in the key of every emotion. <laughs> Working on it slowly. And the thing with Raga, I, I know it's it's such a, a new topic on this side of the world. Um, it's such a beautiful topic. And as I said, I used to think it was the world's most not interesting thing. Like, oh, I used to think it was beautiful, but I would be out um, because it's very relaxing as well. And the songs are unlike Girtin, where for us, we'd have these short Girtins and then we have lots of drums and lots of clapping, lots mm. of um, cymbals and noisemakers. For raga, it's you're just using a stringed tanpura, which is has four chord, four strings, and it only plays two notes, which is the tonic fifth hmm. on the pot, and that's pretty much it. And the same as the Western fifth. Yes. Oh. Depending on the song, so there's like for example, there's one song that will may do a fourth, um, but that's not super common. It's more common to have the perfect fifth. So you would say oh. play low. Um, Lopa, so low fifth, and then sa, which is would be the tonic, and then it goes high, high, and then low. Pa sa 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 pa. No, I got it wrong. Sa sa sa. No, I'm now I'm getting everything with pa. See when I'm like I've done this my whole life, and now I can't even remember <laughs> what the notes are. But yes, so that's the way it goes, and um. And then you may have a flute player, you may have another instrumentalist with you, and there may be drums that will come in. But the, the first part of a raga will just all be improvisation with just you and that tone, that that um, tanpura, that drone sound. And then later on, you may sing the words, and then the drums and the rhythm will come in near the end. Wow, so it's a completely different different. It's it's a the original ragas were, again, for the temples, and they weren't really forms of entertainment. They were forms of med meditation. So they were considered, just by singing, that was your meditation. When you... Oh, I forgot what I was going to say. Okay, before you say that, I'm going to correct myself. So it is... Okay, there we go. That's what it is. <laughs> that on the record because if my Yay. teacher hears that said <laughs> how could you not know that oh I know what I was going to ask you thank you um I needed that before I get it was perfect unfoldment when when you teach so you teach actual raga to people you don't teach about it or strictly about it you also teach them how to do you find that it is like accessible for because so, I, I I don't know how to sing the notes that you just did I mean I've been singing my whole life but it takes time so, but you know I, I know half yeah. steps that's that's it 
really, I have to say it depends on this on the person. Um, some people I've had um, couldn't figure out the notes, but it, it there is a process to it. There is a way to learn. It just takes a bit of time. So first you basically learn the simple scale and I choose a Western scale such as A major just to start off with. So we're just singing straight scale. You already are, usually most people are familiar with hearing that. Mm -hmm. And then we do patterns with that. And it's, so there's a process. So we learn the patterns and then we explore the notes. And then once your voice gets used to it, then I introduce the raga afterwards. Mm -hmm. So it takes some time to get there. And I will give you the formula for the raga. So if I'm doing a night raga, the notes would be... Um, Okay, I'm going to try to sing again. So that's a night evening raga. That's the romantic one. That's the lovely one. And that's a really common raga that people start off with first. I actually do a pentatonic scale, so a raga with five notes, because that's a little bit easier to improvise with in the beginning. But Yaman is usually the first raga that is taught in North India. In South India, they would do the one that I sang earlier on um, for the morning. That would be their first raga that they would teach you. Mm. But there's a process. You learn the notes, then you have some patterns playing with the notes, and then you get the song. And then, so th there's a process to it. And from... And I've, as I said, I have a lot of students around the world. Since I speak Spanish, I have a lot of students from South America and Mexico oh, as well. Nice. So um, that was a new thing for me because they wanted an, a, an Indian teacher to teach them the music. So they come to me um, and all there's all varieties of voice abilities as well. Some people couldn't find the notes and then some people were already musicians and could sing it immediately. And it just takes time. So I, I really had this one student, she really, 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 really wanted to learn. And in the beginning, she could not find the notes at all. She couldn't distinguish. She couldn't even sing it straight in one line. She couldn't distinguish one note from another. But after a few months, I was just in shock. She practiced and we worked on it together. And she was able to sing the scales with the patterns on key correctly. And she's progressed so much in just a few months. So it's just like anything, it just takes time. It's just mm. like any instrument, you won't be able to pick up an instrument. Well, you probably, some people could, but pick up, an <laughs> okay, I'm going to play a song here. I know a few of those. To, to, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> For the rest of us. That's such an amazing thing to me. It's like, like, oh, you've never, I've never played a banjo before. Oh, okay. I got it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. I've seen people like that. Oh, wow. That's really, that's really cool. So I'm imagining, I mean, tell me if this is what's happening internally for you or not but I'm imagining that you have these scales sort of embedded within within you and it's you can kind of just pluck it when you mm -hmm. when you need it yeah mm -hmm. generally yes that's really cool and so in the way that you teach someone to sing a note would be voice matching or do you have an instrument that they so I do match? Well, we have the handy dandy uh phone app so um, oh. what we do now, they have that instrument on an app. So I use um, an app for that. And there are many, depending on what phone you have, you can look up Danpura. And there are hundred, well, I shouldn't say hundred. There are quite a few varieties on all styles of phone. So I download my app. I use my app when I'm teaching. I don't physically play the instrument right. when I'm teaching. But when I do perform or I've, um, even when I perform, sometimes I will not bring a live instrument. I may just do it for certain sections. Um, or if I do a meditative section, 
with um, of singing a raga, I will I will play the tampura. However, mm -hmm. if I'm doing bhajan, then I will switch to the harmonium. Just thought of something. So I'm curious, why would someone who was a, trying to get into a meditative state sing a raga with the emotion of disgust? So those to, those emotions would mostly be for theater. Oh, okay. That's why, yeah. So um, we would we would mostly focus on the more positive emotions, as I think they were sort of we had love, compassion peace and i'm definitely missing one more but there's one more good one um so those four emotions we would really joy is there anything like that joy, happy, happiness uh i should no. know this by heart i literally just taught it <laughs> you can tell me later and I'll, i can I put it in the intro can add it in. <laughs> uh, but the ones for like disgust and anger um i guess yeah uh, all of those negative emotions those would be more for drama so if you're doing like the Mahabharata and you're disgusted by whatever that person did, you would have to express that. I, I'm, I'm always thinking of dance because I used to dance a long time ago. So you would have to express that emotion with your face and your body. And then the raga, the singers or the musicians would have to portray that. Mm. But in general, I don't sing anything based. I have actually never sung a song with anger or disgust. <laughs> I actually don't even know what it would sound like. I have seen somebody dance it which is incredible because then you you hear this the singer and it's almost like they're wailing or they're crying and they're just they're emoting all of this emotion of, of sadness or something but they're describing a specific story so when you have a, a a theater piece or a dance piece they're bringing you that journey through the music and through the movement and all of this i should mention is all traditional um had written in the natya shastra which is a document written Again, I'm not sure of the exact date, but a very long time ago. And it has all of this within it, how to use music and drama um, and dance into your spiritual practice, as well as the Vedas too. Of course, they have a whole section just on music. The whole Samaveda is music-based. So this is really integrated within the whole, within spirituality. Music is not separate. Oh, I was muting. <laughs> I like that. Music is not separate. Sama Veda. I'll have to go check that out. That sounds cool. So we've been talking about ragas for a while, which is infinitely fascinating. But I wonder if there's something else that you had hoped to chat about because I don't want to dominate with my no, nitpicking of your raga no, okay. info. To tell you the truth, <laughs> raga has been, I started off most of my life in a bhajan-based, bhajan and mantra-based community. So we used to sing, I used to only sing bhajans. Again, my mom would take me to raga classes, but at that age, I didn't really understand it. And I have to say, raga may not be for everyone. Um, um, bhajan, I guess, is more, um, can feel more joyful because it's more rhythm, it's more for the people. But I've been finding lately, I've been more attracted to raga. I still love my bhajans. I can break it out in a second and I'll be all for it. I still go every week and... Uh, sing but it's just I feel like I just want I guess the listeners to know that there's so many there's such a variety of spiritual and beautiful music and practices whether it's mantra or raga or bhajan or and then of course there's other traditions as well throughout India what sounds like a raga in South India is not going to sound like a raga in North India or even different schools of music are going to sound slightly different and each has its own beauty so that's pretty much all I wanted to say for that. And even for ragas, how people will say, well, it, 
it takes a lifetime or lifetimes to actually learn ragas. What's the point? Um, I'm not going to mm. be able to do it. Mm. And I also, what I say to that, and I do get that question quite a bit, is that even just by opening your voice, if you want, to, if you choose to learn, just by singing them, you start to open yourself up. You start to open up those channels within your body. Um, I didn't talk about it before, but within the Nada Yoga system, the idea that you know we have all these Nadis, these 72,000 Nadis or energy centers in our body. And they're linked, of course, to when you have bundles of them, you have your chakras. So they're all based on vibration and sound. So when you're singing and you're bending the notes and moving the notes, you're actually um, stimulating and activating these energetic systems within your body. So therefore, raga becomes a spiritual practice. Music becomes a spiritual practice. It's, it's more than singing that simple song you learn when you're five years old. So I think, yeah, that's pretty much it. There, it's such a huge, beautiful topic. And um, I feel like I'm just touching the tip of it. It that's an interesting objection that I wouldn't have thought to have because in my mind, if you can get to the end of something, it's not very interesting. Like if you can just not get any better ever. I remember thinking that when I started like the physical yoga practice of asanas, I was like, at some point I'm going to know all of these and then what, you know, mm-hmm. um, which it turns out not to be true. There's always somewhere else you can go with it, but but I remember thinking like, wow, that's really, that's kind of boring. I'm going to have to take up something else, you know, <laughs> but if there's like an endless depth that you can go into, I mean, that's actually a very exciting, you know, cause you can choose not to, I mean, you can go only so far if you want to, but you can. And even, um, I should mention too, if you're not a singer, I have people who are not very comfortable with their voices or just don't want to sing. It's not their thing. And that's totally fine too. Listening also helps. And the great thing we have nowadays are things like YouTube and Spotify and different music platforms. And there are so many beautiful pieces that are available online. So if, for example, you want to do a meditative practice or if you want to do your Shavasana or something, or even a yogic uh, asana practice with a raga, you look up, okay, what time is it now? Let's say it's nine o'clock. I'm going to look up raga for 9 a.m. And then it's going to show up. And then you'll have all of these varieties of different instruments, different musical artists. There are some absolutely amazing, amazing artists. So it's not like we have to reinvent the wheel that, okay, now you have to learn Raga. Now you have to learn how to do this. You can, if you enjoy, if you enjoy it. And I do have many students who, who say to me, I don't want to be a famous singer. I just want to be able to experience the notes within myself. And there are benefits of course, to um, singing it yourself, but Again, listening and just meditating with it also has immense benefits. And yes, mm. it never ends. <laughs> <laughs> that means you are no longer needed here, <laughs> earthly plane. So, do you have a sense of why? Like, just I, it's not a. This is not like an, an educational question. Just sort of like intuitively, like why West? What we call Western music is so rigidly intervaled whereas like Indian East even like East you know like if you go to China or Japanese music or stuff it, it there's a lot more like kind of it's a lot more like string instruments as opposed to like a piano I guess or you know what I think it is when I did my music history in western music a long time ago I was thinking about this a lot and um the original western music again was based in the church 
um, well, that style of music, the more classically based music. And there was, there used to be a lot of improvisation. Improvisation was a part of the music. Then as history progressed, then we started writing things down. And then we wanted to, well, I should say the music wanted to maintain the um, style of the original composer. So I feel like if I had Chopin playing, I don't know if he, well, I can't say for Chopin, but I'm just assuming, I don't know if when he played piano, if he played exactly the same thing all the time. We just mm. don't know because there's no records of it. Mm. But one thing that's really important is the shift in the tones of the music. And this happened around the time of Mozart, where before the, the harpsichord and the instruments were based on a system of music where if you vibrated a string, um, you played all of the notes based on that vibration. So the notes were not e equidistant. They were not equally separate. Mm. But during that time, they started tuning pianos and harpsichords. That's when sort of when the piano started coming in around the end of his lifetime. Um, they started making the notes equidistant. And I remember a quote where Mozart said, oh, the divinity in the music is gone. So mm. just that change is uh, where I think I feel music started to change. We started to, well, Western music started to focus more on the written music and the styles. I still find there's a profound beauty in the Western music. I especially love classical music. I'm a piano player myself. And um, it's just, I, that's where I think the difference is. Whereas within the Eastern traditions, I can speak mostly for Indian traditions. We weren't putting stuff on, um, we didn't focus on harmonies. We focused more on melody. So they're only now with the influence of Western systems of music. Now we're starting to see not so much in raga, but in bhajans, you'll hear melody. I play chords, which is considered, oh my gosh, in um, on the harmonium. You mean harmony? I got, I got yelled at by a little old lady <laughs> once. And then I didn't understand what she was talking about. And then I, when I learned the history that certain areas, they're, they're pure melody. They don't do chords. But um, now all of these systems are getting... In, uh, interwoven together and now you're hearing new styles of music new styles of Indian music and it's amazing too so I think everything is great um, but that's really what I think happened in the in the western system is it's it that there was a shift in and again I'm not a musicologist in western music at all I've only taken a couple of courses <laughs> and played piano most of my life so that's what my assumption is but I have been taught several times especially with the dhrupad that I sing as well which is a very old style they do not follow the the piano scale that we have right now or harmonium scale of music because um, that's why we have the tampura. So, for example, if I sing sarega, like sarega, some of the notes, depending on the raga, may be slightly lower or slightly closer to a different mm. note, depending on the raga. Mm. And my teacher, I'm still a work in training. He's still helping me to figure out uh, because I'm so trained in the Western system of hearing a piano. I need to say, okay, this note needs to be slightly lower or this note needs to be slightly higher in order for it to be based on the vibrations of a string in that older system of music. And this is all by ear. I mean, there's no, it's not like you're going like, okay, this many hurts. You, you have can't. to. <laughs> no, you have to, I have to hear him. And sometimes when I, I sing, I'm like, oh, I'm doing this perfectly. And he'll be like, okay, Rishma. <laughs> that's a little bit too low you have or that's a little bit too high you have to bring it down and I can't still I'm working on hearing the differences between the two different scales hmm. I know there are, again there are videos on online I think it's called the just system um, so you can hear the two different songs uh, songs played in the two different uh, key styles and they do sound slightly different 
Um, to be honest, I'm not used to the more ancient style, so I'm still learning to develop that. But it's it's just fascinating to know that that, that even happened and that it even um, within the more traditional styles of Indian music, they really try to maintain that. And that's the reason why a lot of people, re- um, some, I shouldn't say a lot, some people reject the harmonium in India because of that right however some people embrace the harmonium thinking this is the most amazing instrument in the world so it goes both ways so one of my lineages is like if you touch the harmonium with this song it's just no that's absolutely not going to happen whereas in another style my teacher plays their harmonium while i sing so again different systems different ideas different schools of music will will do different things well, the harmonium is an interesting instrument because it's like any tuning yeah. kind of goes, you know, it's, yeah. so it almost has its own scale depending on which one you pick up. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I have one that is slightly off. So whenever I bring it, the drummers always make fun of me because they're like, Rishma, it's not on key. And they have to change all their drums to be in tune with that off key uh, harmonium. <laughs> oh, well, that's a whole other exploration too, because I mean, I don't think in Western music we have tuned drums am I wrong I don't think so yeah that's that's an interesting one because yeah so in within Indian music the um the tabla I'll I'll just say for tabla for now because that's what I know the best will be tuned to your tonic note yeah if I'm singing on an A they will play an A or they will play um the perfect fifth version of it so it matches into the scale yeah yeah that's so crazy for example they'll have multiple tablas for different notes and they'll have like a wall of drums. You're like, oh, this is so cool. Um, and then they will match you. Yeah. Sometimes they'll switch it in between if I change scales. or. But if you're singing in a kirtan style, everybody sings in whatever note they want. So they'll just do a basic one and they just keep with it, stick with it. They won't change for that. They'll mostly change if it's like a, a, a professional performance or if it's um, a raga, then they will match you. I cannot believe that an hour just went by. <laughs> Thank you so much for being so generous with your information and your time. This has been truly educational. I I have had so much fun listening to you talk about this. I can only imagine what it's like to take a class with you. Oh, can I ask you, would you share with, um, with everyone, like, well, first of all, where they can find you and take all your classes, but I'm curious before you do that, could you explain just sort of the format of a class? Like if someone were to take a class with you, what would that look like? So I actually have different, different topics. So I'll have, I have one class, for example, on Nadi yoga, and I'll be starting that um, in a few months because it's summer holidays for me right now with my kids. And as you can tell, it's a, a battle with that. So once they go back to school, um, I'll be starting one on Nadi yoga, and that's where I go through all of the different topics. Now, that one I feel is more informational based because I like to give people the background information, the history. How does this actually work? How do our Nadis or get stimulated? Why? Um, so I, that's a really how to, but I'd still teach you, um, different mantras and verses as well. And I don't go into raga as much. I will teach you some singing, but I find that needs its own class. And then I do uh, quite a few classes on, um, bhajan and kirtan. So I go through different deities and we learn the stories to make that connection with the songs. And then I'll teach some songs. So that's its own little course. However, right now I'm also teaching raga. So if people are interested in raga, it really depends on the person. So we do start off. So I have one student right now um, who I'm starting off from the very beginning. And she wants, I also find out what the student wants to know. Do you just want pure singing or do you want that information as well? So this student, for example, she wants to know the information as well as the singing. So I don't give you a whole hour lecture. (laughs) I, I break it up throughout all of the classes. So 
we start off with the singing, we start off with all of that, and then we go into a little bit of theory, or maybe I'll start off with some theory, and then we'll go into singing. And then once you get to a certain spot, then we start playing with the sounds, then we start exploring the ragas, exploring how do I improvise, how do I create my own music melodies um, based on the system. And again, um, there are two kind of different styles that I teach um, and I sing myself. And one style, for example, Drupad, just to give you an example, uh, I spent six years on one draga, one song. That was it, six years. And then there's another system in India where you learn a new draga every three months. Mm-hmm. So one is, and again, it depends on the student. Do you want to go into that depth six years for one song or even three or four a year for one song? Or do you want to learn songs as a fun thing that you can just sing? So I really, if I'm doing individual classes, I try to find out what are the goals of the student first, and then I work towards those. And right now, um, I have a mix. So some students really want to go more in depth, and some students just want, you know, want to go very slowly, a step at a time. Hmm. Wow. So in the first one that you mentioned, the Nada yoga class, or the, is that what it's called? That's a, I'm assuming that's a group class. That's a group class. Yes. Yes. Okay, cool. And I do at the moment, since I'm not offering right now, I do have a recorded version of it available. So if people want to just listen to it, it's a pre-recorded one of the last class that I did and I've just uploaded it. I also have some audio courses that I'm working on. I have one right now, which it's a 10 minute a day. Um, So it's 10 classes, about 10 to 15 minutes each day of a different mantra, short mantras that you can learn. And I'm working on another one. I'm still in the two more classes to to record on this one and edit it is one on Hudgens. So what I've done is I've tried to, well, no, I shouldn't try. I I did um, tell you a story. So first I start off, okay, let's say we're talking about Ganesh. I'll tell you a story about Ganesh, a little bit about him, and then we'll go straight into the song. I'll teach you the words and then we can sing it together. And that's an audio course that I'm almost done. and those are all available again on my website. So it's literally just my name, but I have a fun name which is with two extra eyes in there. So it's rishmamusic.com. So R-I-S-H-I-M-A music.com. And then that has links to my uh, YouTube, my Spotify, my Facebook, Instagram. And also one more thing is that I've decided to offer free classes on YouTube. So for people who want to learn more Kirtan or Bhajan-based short songs, um, originally I was doing it um, as a small class, but then so many people were asking me that they weren't getting it. So I've just started uploading them. So once a week, I've been uploading classes for the previous ones I've done, and then I'm just going to do them once a month. So those are available right now on my YouTube channel. Oh, cool. Okay, sweet. And I'm assuming you have a newsletter? Yes. Yes. Could you add me? (laughs) I'd love to know all about, yeah. Um, All right, well, thank you so much, Rishma. This was really amazing. I'm so glad that DTO connected us and um, I will hopefully hear, I will definitely be keeping uh, abreast of what you are up to because I think this is really, really cool. Um, So yeah, thank you so much. And uh, 
Thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for tuning into the podcast, y'all. Please like, subscribe, rate, comment, whatever the platform you listen to podcasts on offers you as a way to let its algorithm know that you're enjoying these episodes. That really helps. Also, there's some links in the podcast description notes that allow you to support the podcast in a way that benefits you and us. So please check those out. And if you'd like to stay in touch with me, you can sign up for my mailing list at portersinger.com. We'll see you in the next episode. Bye.